You're listening to the Gold Standard Podcast. I'm your host, three-time Olympian and motivational speaker, Leah Amico. On this show, we're going to dig deep to unlock what it actually takes to build a foundation for greatness. If you're an ambitious person with big vision, but you feel like fear is holding you back, get ready for some major breakthroughs. Let's dive in. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Gold Standard Podcast. I am so excited to have a legend on my show today. She is a legend in the sport of softball and has impacted so many lives. So I'm really excited for what she's going to share. She is a UCLA softball first, the first American at UCLA softball national champion, was a part of their first national championship as an athlete, went on to coach as well, uh, bringing across national championship teams and a Hall of Famer. She produced 65 All-Americans while she was coaching, as well as 15 Olympians. I played with a lot of those Olympians that they talk about, um, and we're going to talk about that today. She was 27 years as a coach um, at UCLA, and during her years as a player and coach, the Bruins won 11 national championships. Unbelievable. Welcome to my show, Sue Enquist. Oh, well, first of all, hello and welcome to everybody. I just want you to, to know, Leah, it has been such a treat being a colleague, uh, being able to coach with you, uh, be a part with, with the national team. And I just want to say congratulations on your humanness, your integrity, and a person that is such a great leader that happens to be so dangerous to play against. <laughs> Well, we're going to talk a little bit about that because Sue, you really are. You're just one of those great motivators. And I know obviously you embodied that as an athlete. I want to talk a little bit about that as well, because you played at a time where softball wasn't as visible and people didn't get to see. I got to hear stories from some of my older teammates, as well as some people who knew you. Um, I was fortunate and blessed to hear those stories, but a lot of people don't know about that. Um, and then, you know, again, I got to play against you as a coach and I just knew like just the way you're standard, you, you exemplify the gold standard and all you do. So that's what I want to share about that. So let's, let's start with, um, you as an athlete, what drove you as an athlete? Well, I think one of the things is from a very young age, I saw sports as a place where I belonged. I grew up in a time, I'm 65. I, I grew up in a time where it wasn't popular to play sports and you didn't have access. And I am the youngest of three children. And my brother, 11 months older, was a little leaguer. And he let me tag along. I was the official shagger at San Clemente Little League. And there was a gentleman there named Coach John Springman. And he came to the fence and said, Susie, I see how fast you're running for the foul balls. We want to make you the official shagger at practice. And that was a door that opened for me. And I remember it like it was yesterday, the sense of belonging. And I fell in love with it. And it was, it's an important story about access. And when you open the door for others, how it can be life-changing. So I was the official shagger for Little League, fell in love with the sport, played baseball my whole life. I am the recipient of Title IX. So in, in high school, when the federal mandate that says boys and girls have equal access in education and sport, I took advantage of that. And I played high school softball and played boys baseball. That's how I got to UCLA. A lot of people don't know that it wasn't because of my softball prowess. It was because of baseball. Wow. And so talk to me when you got to UCLA and you guys were going after the national championship, what was that standard? Was it just um, obviously set, you know, at the top by Sharon Backus was the coach at the time. Is that correct? Well, kind of. Um, 
to pump the brakes a little bit, right? So when, when I got there as a freshman, we wore the men's track team practice t-shirts were our game uniforms because Title IX had not been enacted at UCLA yet. And it wasn't until my sophomore year when a new AD came, SWA, Senior Women's Administrator came in, hired all these new women coaches, put money in the budget for these women coaches to be able to pri provide scholarships. And in one year, we went from the men's track team practice t-shirts as game uniforms to having game uniforms. We didn't have to drive our own cars. We had meal money. We went from the cellar to the penthouse in one year. And Sharon Backus, at that point, we were the doormat. We were the team everybody wanted to schedule. I mean, I know there's some listeners out there like, oh, I've been on that team before. And Sharon Backus came in and said, I don't care that we're a new team. I don't even care that we may not be the best team, but we are going to have an attention to detail. We are going to have a work ethic. We're going to set goals and hold ourselves accountable to them, whether you're the 15th best person on the team or you're the first and most important person on the team. And what that did was it made all of us feel like, wow, that's a high standard. And Sharon used to always say the greatest compliment I can give you is a high standard, is that gold medal standard. That's the greatest compliment I can give you is a high standard. And I really believe, you know, listening to you say this and knowing how you carried teams again, eventually when you turned and transitioned into the coach coaching role, uh, I really believe that people rise or will fall down standard that is set for them. Do you agree with that? There, there's no doubt about it. And in three short years, we went, we weren't even ranked and uh, we had won our conference. So we got to go to postseason. And Sharon used to always say, our preparation is what's going to give us peace of mind on game day. So we're going to work really hard Monday through Friday. So game day is easier. And, you know, we really believed in that. And we had a strong attention to detail that anybody that was the weak link, it wasn't about shaming them and saying, hey, you need to step up. It was about grabbing them and saying, how can I help you get better? And for me, I call that grace. Uh, today, I call that grace. At the time, it was just a group of people that had high integrity that Anybody can be Captain Obvious and go, oh, you're weak sauce. But who are the people that can say, hey, we've got one that's fallen off the wagon. She's partying too much or she's not working hard enough. Who can be the ones of integrity and have grace? Unmerited acceptance is how I define grace. Grace has many different definitions, um, many from the Bible and many from, from uh, corporate operational definitions. But I define it as unmerited acceptance, meaning I can come and help you but I never have to lower my standard. So it's unmerited acceptance because we always have to strive to reach that standard. But I'm going to go and grab you and pull you in and back up because we know humans are not perfect. And it's our job to stay connected, take care of each other, but always uphold the standard. So for you as an athlete, what was one of the biggest challenges that you faced? For, for me, probably one of the biggest challenges was making sure that I stayed strong. You know, we know now the brain has a strong voice and a weak voice is always remaining hyper vigilant around my strong voice always gets the last word because as high performers, a lot of society has kind of romanticized the high performer 
And we are making people believe the high performer has no fear. They're fearless. And it's easy when it, it's actually just the opposite. The high performer has an uber sensitive antenna of everything. So they're constantly navigating the weak voice and the strong voice because the brain is set up to always say, hey, you better get that home run. Hey, you better get that no hitter. Hey, you better become all American. Hey, you better be a national team player. And it's nonstop noise. What separates our greatest players and keeps them up there from the player that doesn't quite get over the hump is that great player is able to move through those thoughts very efficiently. It's not like they don't have them, but they don't sit in them and they have amazing failure recovery so they can fall short in the moment, own it and move on better than an average person. And I think, I believe a lot of that has to do with your upbringing. I think your mom and dad, your inner circle, whether it be your, your family, your faith, that is, a, that is a foundation for you to rely on as you navigate life and you go through elementary, junior, high school, and then ultimately to becoming the best of the best college. And then if you're really good, be an Olympian and a world champion. Yeah, I love how you say that because I can relate. I think every athlete has those hard moments, has those doubts, has those frustrations, has days where you think, can I do this? Can I compete at this level? Can I live up to the expectations? Not only that I put on myself, but that I think my coach has for me or my parents and, you know, just the, the spectators and the fans just heard today about a, you know, a stellar basketball athlete out of Stanford a, a few years back who ended up getting, getting drafted really high and then just was done within a couple of years and basically said, I just, I just couldn't handle. And it was the mental, it was the mental side of not feeling like you can own up and and that identity. So I love how you share that because I agree. It's not that some people don't go through it. Everybody deals with it. It's how we deal with it. Like you said, it's not sitting there. It's not meditating on those, you know, all those fears and those anxieties and those pressures, but instead it's, it's thinking, like you said, okay, this is normal. This is a natural part of the progress. I, you know, I need to need to keep moving through that. I love how you share that. What would you tell an athlete to Today because there's so many athletes that do struggle, that do want to give up, do, that, you know, maybe feel like they've figured it out and then they have another bad day, <laughs> a bad game. How, how would you tell people to deal with that? Well, I think, first of all, it would depend on, you know, where, where she is in her journey. So what we know statistically is that to PLAY, which is the best part of sport, is to play. We know that gets tested right around 13, 14, 15. It goes from 12 and under, which is just the fun zone. To all of a sudden, now you're going to go to another team. Maybe you travel an hour to go to your travel team. You're now going to be playing in 14 and unders or 16s and unders. And it goes from PLAY to scholarship. You got to get a scholarship. And so I would first want to talk to that athlete or that parent of an athlete when they're still in the PLAY. To the parents, I would first say to you, make sure you're recognizing and celebrating their process character skills, celebrate their work ethic, celebrate their attention to detail, celebrate their kindness, celebrate their grace. Parents, teach grace and be grace. So when they're playing, they can take this all in because play is just play. Because by the time it becomes all about the results, they have to rely on who they are as a human. And if they don't have any inventory in there, that I'm a good person, I work hard, I stay positive, I have attention to detail, I have, I've mastered my failure recovery, I understand how to fail, own it, and move on. My parents have always celebrated the person I am, 
how I do my work and not how many medals are on the stand. I challenge the parents to reflect on their script at Thanksgiving when the cousins come and the extended family come and you're talking about your little Susie. Are you talking about her A in biology and her 400 batting average? Or are you talking about her work ethic and how she's kind and how she's mastered failure recovery? I challenge parents to flip the script on process because we value what we measure and we measure what we value. And children, their brain gets stained. So by the time I get them as a college coach, I know what kind of influence the parents have had. I'm getting an 18-year-old that's ready to be a young adult, or I get an 18-year-old that sounds like a 12-year-old because they die at 12 years old mentally because we stopped valuing them as a human and they just became a product. I had, I did a focus group for an apparel company and I had, this was 12 and under. And I had a player say, oh, I, I actually already died inside because I've been playing travel ball for two years and I've hated it ever since, but I'm going to still play because my parents want me to get a scholarship. Wow. How do you respond to that? So parents, be aware of the words that come out of your mouth and let it be focused on process. So by the time they go into that transition of serious softball, they can still protect the PLAY. They can still be responsible. But at the end of the day, when you put them in the car, put your hands at 10 and two on the wheel, turn around and go, man, I love watching you hustle. That's all they need. They don't need to so know, powerful. dad, what about dad, right? Dad, shake your pie hole. They don't want to relive the second at bat when the count was one and two and they swung at the rise ball. No, no. Oh, so I, I so relate and I so appreciate that. And, you know, I think back to my years and, and I probably remember more as I got older, like you said, the more pressure, you probably had more focus on what you were doing, right? Than when you're younger and you're just playing, you know, it's just like, I don't know. I just remember having fun. Right. And it really, it was when I was process oriented and when I was in environments that set that up for me, it made it easier to fall under that and to just enjoy it. And yes, I was the hardest on myself, but again, as long as, like you said, I focused on, well, I'm going to work hard today. I'm going to get some extra cuts in. I'm going to, you know, be next to my teammates and they're going to build me up because I love being around them. And when I was focused on those things also as an athlete, um, I, I just noticed the difference. So I really appreciate saying that, and, you know, you talked about the difference from that 12 to 14, like you said, and even before I think people were recruiting younger, I remember years ago watching these athletes and seeing these girls that I knew that were 12 and just giggly and funny and goofy on the field. And then I came and watched them and same thing. It was 14 under. And all of a sudden they had all these serious looks on their face. Nobody looked like they were having fun anymore. And I just was so sad because I was like, is it also those ages where they're worried, like what people are thinking of me while I'm out here and, you know, how people might be looking at me, like almost like that awareness to you go through those teenage years. Would you say that plays into it a little bit too? Oh, there's no doubt. There's so much noise in, in their head. And, and remember, people need to understand that I cannot control the feelings that come in my head unprovoked. So you may be having a great day and then all of a sudden, bing! You're not good enough. You can't control that feeling. But what you can control is you can take that feeling and turn it into a behavior of action. So we always want players to understand feelings you can't control. So don't shame yourself that you're talking badly to yourself. That was unprovoked, not your fault. But what you are responsible for is what do I do with that? Do I bring that up to 
affirmation, I am good enough. I've done these things. I'm capable. So what I always say is rely on the past work. That's your inventory. Identify the moment, only a tiny moment. You don't have to take on seven innings. You don't have to take on a hundred pitches. You have to take on one pitch. And then you put all this work in, you know, your inventory, you'll always be prepared to meet that moment and you'll be bigger than that moment. And if an athlete can remember the difference between feelings are unprovoked, they come in, but what you do with them are those behaviors. That's the key you need to focus on and have that awareness in your own head. Yeah, I love that. There's a Bible verse when you're talking about that, that just makes me think of it talks about taking our thoughts captive under Christ. And the idea is just like the thoughts, you're right. They can really attack us. That's why some people on the outside, they look like they have it all together. And then if they really open up, there's some people that you're shocked to hear that they really fight a lot of these demons. And, and it's hard because you want to help people, like you said, and I, I'm glad that we're getting to a point where there is more discussion, but still some people don't share and they keep it inside. And, and we want people to feel comfortable and not feel alone. I think the more that it gets talked about and the more people realize, oh, wow, other people deal with this. Or like you just shared, being able to then have a process. Okay, this is going to happen. It happens to everybody. But what can I do? Like you just said, take that inventory. Think about things from your past that you've done. Know that. And then you said, just focus on that one moment. Instead of making it become a mountain. Because I think well, that's a lot of people do, right? Yeah. And there's an easy little exercise parents, moms and dads and, and daughters and sons can do. Get out a white sheet of paper, draw a line down the middle of it, put strong voice, weak voice, and write out your prompts, write out what we call your talk, your, your script, your what we call a talk track. And you'll notice the, the weak voice has lots of script because we are default good at talking about what we're not and are what we are we have to be more conscious and more um, intentional. And moms, dads, daughters, and sons should go through this exercise. It's fascinating to do at the dinner table. Not that people are at the dinner table anymore, but it's a great excuse. It's to have some dinner. Let's go ahead and do our talk track. Do that every quarter. And then what happens is the brain now starts to have a talk track for the affirmation of the positive, which is really important because at the end of the day, when it comes to respect and respect of your teammates and respect of other people, we really judge people on how they respond to challenge and how they respond to failure. And we place a high value on being positive in moments because at the end of the day, I never met a player who said, I, can't, oh, I, can't, I couldn't stand my coach. He was way too positive with me. He believed in me way too much. <laughs> or I couldn't stand my parents. They believed in me way too much. And so if you're a leader out there, I don't care if it's high school travel ball or you're a parent, at the end of the day, when you become an adult, you remember the people that had belief in you. Those are the people that impact. And it's our job as leaders to catch them doing it right every day. Yeah, I, I, I knew even as a parent, it was hard because you like, right, you discipline and you point out the things when they're getting in trouble, but you're not always, you're just kind of the expectation is good as, as opposed to like you talked about, like really praising them when they're doing it. I know that. I've, you know, continued to work on that, um, with my boys in high school, knowing the importance of that, because again, like you're talking about, I thrived on that. I, it's just some speaking. I realized like when you put out encouragement, I realized everybody, I don't care what age you are. I don't care what stage of life you're in. Everybody wants to be encouraged. And it is, it's that belief that you matter, that you can do great things, that you make a difference. And sometimes well, we just need those reminders. 
Yeah. And you said something that really piqued my memory around, you know, when you were talking about your boys and sometimes having to hold your standard and, and discipline them. And I can remember um, there was a time at UCLA and I had one, one of my all-time favorite Bruins and she said, can I talk to you? And I said, sure. And we were in a little bit of a struggle and um, the team was, and she says, I don't know if you're aware of this, but, and she was talking about my language and she says, you know, when we're struggling, you say they. they, they don't get it. They need to work harder. They need to get the bunt down. And then when we play well, you say we were on it today. We played Bruin softball. And I just want you to be aware of that. A lot of us notice that. And if you want to be impactful on me, I need you beside me on the bad days too. Ch changed my life. Changed my life. I remember talking to Papa Wooden about it. And he goes, well, Sue, you're at a point in your career where you're just conditionally in love with excellence. I go, what does that mean? And he said, you only love the game on the good days. And he was right. I love this game on the good days. And it was a game changer for me. I started to pay attention to my words. So parents, are you just Captain Obvious? Are you really good about attention to detail on what they're not doing? Are you equally as good on the attention to detail? So to the, and I, I talk a lot about the dads because the dads can set a level of confidence for girls that's different than boys. And, and I've watched parenting, right? I've watched parenting for 27 years as a coach and there is a common theme. The dads that catch their daughters doing it right at attention to detail equally to the high standard of the discipline to hold them accountable are the athletes that come in that are more emotionally balanced. Oh, I love that. I, you know, and, and you're talking about those bad days and the response with that. I remember watching my son at a football game this season and his quarterback just got just crushed and he's a receiver. And I watched the receivers kind of walk off kind of frustrated. It was a close game. And then I watched this quarterback walk over and trying to lift them up. And I was like, wait a second, telling my son, like, no, you need to be picking him up. Like, yeah. I don't care how disappointed you are. Like, look at that big picture. Like, what does that do to your team? And, you know, and you see those people that do that. I said, that's a leader. Like he was the one who could have been mad and like, where's my team. But instead he did the opposite. He knew in order for us to be great, like we need to pick each other up. And like, those are the intangibles you're talking about. We do this parents, you can do this teammates, you teach it really, right? They catch that. If that you do it, then it's going to be easier for them to do that within their team. I love everything you're talking about, everything you're sharing. So what was the hardest for you going from an athlete to then coaching? What would you say was the biggest challenge? I think the biggest challenge was letting go of control that when you are a high performing individual, you have a real great sense of control on everything you're doing, the decisions you make every day. And then when I got into coaching, I realized very quickly now I see the whole team and I realize, wow, not everybody is equally committed in their effort and their attitude, that they don't see the standards the same way. I learned very quickly to understand people that fall short, maybe falling short intentionally, maybe falling short because they've never been taught priorities and accountability. And so I learned at UCLA to first understand your path that got you here, that is different than any, anybody else's path. So we can seek understanding in conflict before we start to change behavior. If I can understand 
what you don't have and what you don't understand, I can then close that gap and hopefully lessen the conflict amongst yourself and the coaches and yourself to your teammates. Yeah, that was the hardest part, hear, control. When I hear you talking about that too, I think being able to then to turn it and be like, okay, I, it's so different. I, I've done a little bit of coaching, not much, but I, it is different. Leading from within a team and then going now being the coach and having to try to find those leaders from within the team that can lead in a positive way. Because as a coach, you set the standard, you get set out the plan for them, but then they have to choose to show up every single day. And I, and I also hear when you're talking about that, like coaching the player first or the, sorry, the person before the player, like write yeah. them as a person. Um, and so, yeah, so that's so good. Um, and you know, when you talk about well, that, I think what's difficult is if I'm coaching is the coaching industry, we are measured. Remember we value what we measure and we measure what we value. So we know in the coaching industry, if you're a paid coach, Society only wants us to do two things well, win and graduate kids. So in my contract, it's going to reward me for graduation rate and victories. But nowhere in there does it say we're going to reward you for developing great humans. And so there is a built-in quagmire. It's never going to work perfectly because Coaches are so, and early in my career, I was transactional. I wanted to win and then suck the life out of every opponent. I didn't want to beat you by two. I wanted to beat you by 12. Well, that translates into the players. And then when it gets hard, they have nothing to rely on because early on, I was so fixated on results. Once I started to focus on the human and build them up to a point where they can sustain losing days, losing weekends, we had more joy and ultimately more success. And so for me, until our industry starts to put a greater value on team cohesion and individual mastery in our process, we're not going to actually solve youth sports and the collegiate experience until we as administrators start rewarding coaches for the, their culture score. We now can give scores on culture because culture is, is driven by two levers, how we compete together and how we relate to each other in our relationships. And co- corporate America is decades ahead of us. We're going to get that get to that point where we're going to be measuring teammateship, but we're not quite there yet on a scalable level. Yeah, I wanted to talk about how all this plays in because I feel like these you know, attributes and characteristics of, of champions and people who are successful in sports. If you take those same attributes and and put them into the business world, corporate America, like, you know, I believe then that's why a lot of people want athletes. They know how to work with a team. They know how to be coachable. They know how to fulfill their role, but what are those areas? You know, maybe talk a little bit more about that. Cause I know you do a lot of speaking and, um, and what have you seen? You just mentioned they do it better than athletes, but what, what is that the main thing that transfers as an athlete to then go on and be highly successful in the business world, no matter what area or field you go into. Well, first of all, to to all the listeners out there, no matter what your sport is, I'm now on the corporate side. So I'll go in and do workshops around uh, competitive excellence and teammateship. But And so I deal with a lot of HR. This is what I know about sports. You got one job, you got to manage your job. You're going to have 300 applicants, HR will tell you. Well, the first thing we do is we first... We filter out all the athletes because we know they have a built-in internal drive. They have a built-in ability to be disciplined. 
And I had one HR person. I don't know if she said that because she knew I was done in sports, but she says, then we take the sports that are extremely difficult where there's a lot of failure. And so we grab diamond sports because your sports, you fail three quarters of the time, if not more. And we know if you're, if you're failing three out of four times, you know, that that's tough to stay in that sport. And they're looking for that ability to be resilient and that, that stick to itiveness. So if you're a diamond sport, diamond sport parents, you will have a built in resolve that you've learned over decades of playing this game. Now, here's the sad part. If you don't have a leader in your club program or high school program or college program, that's dripping every week this celebration of those process skills, you will not know how to speak to it in an interview. So they're going to 300 applicants. They're picking, there's 12. You're going to be one of them. And they cannot wait to interview you to have you talk about your process oriented character skills. Then you get in there in the camera, the zoom interview, you're deer in headlights because nobody taught you what you were actually possessing for those eight, 10, 12 years. That's the sad part is we're not doing a good job of teaching them what they have already acquired and what lies inside of them and how they're going to be able to use that in the real world when they graduate. Yeah, so good. So good. I think about, um, you know, again, those life skills, right? Like you said, but you're almost like pointed out to some people. So Natasha Watley, obviously one of the best athletes and people ever, right? We love Natasha. She got to play for you, all American, just all world, all everything, Olympic teammate of mine. Um, And she mentioned how she was so mad, but so thankful that every day you made her come in and talk about what she did that day on camera, (laughs) that it was basically like torture, but that it was the best thing ever for her because you knew that you needed to bring out her voice. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, you know, backstory on Natasha, those of you that don't know her, she came in to UCLA, I would love to claim her, but when you have iconic players like Aliyah Miko and you've got somebody like Natasha Wally and Lisa Fernandez, the college coach cannot take credit for that, uh, that champ DNA that I call it. But where she had a lot of room for growth was in her ability to use her voice. She loved to lead by example. She was the most dependable, humble person that I had ever met. But I also knew that how she saw the world was extremely valuable. And I knew, we knew because of her physical attributes, we knew she was going to be breaking barriers. I knew this when Tasha was, you know, when she went to camp, I'm like, this kid as a person of color in a white privileged white sport, she is going to break barriers. And she, you know, she came to camp in eighth grade and we watched all through high school. And we knew we, that we were going to have somebody that was going to be able to be a spokesman for not only excellence, but access. And what we would do after practice is she would just learn to articulate ideas and thoughts. And the more we could pull out her opinions, she had this beautiful skill. We didn't teach her. Our, I, what I get credit for is come to room 217, my office. We're going to do it 45 minutes a day. And by the time you leave this institution, you're going to be able to articulate your thoughts that are so beautiful. You know this, Tasha has the ability to speak about hard, uncomfortable things with so much grace and dignity. Here's the difference between Tasha and myself. I'm like a fire hose. 
I'm like a wrecking ball. I'm going to be a truth teller, but you are going to be bruised and bloody by the time I get done talking to you verbally. To me, Tasha represents the best of the future. When I think of Tasha Waltley, I think about, gosh, if we could put her in charge of a few global committees, I think our world could come together because she has that uncanny ability to connect with you, to understand you, even though you may be falling short and nudge you up to excellence. And to me, that's a real gift. And I wanted Tasha to be able to articulate that. And that's why we're so proud of the work, important work she's doing at the Natasha Waltley Foundation. Yeah, she's just really making an impact in athletes and young women who don't have many opportunities and giving them access, like you talked about the importance. And, and just, again, I'm, I'm so honored to have you on this show because you know, we're talking about where it started and look at where the, the game has come and the opportunities that are there for female athletes since you first were in college. And, you know, I, I don't think kids these days have any idea. I think it's important just, you know, the understanding. Let's talk a little bit um, about your opportunity as a consultant with Team USA Women's Volleyball in the last Olympics. I'd love to hear just a little bit about your takeaways from that experience, what you did and, you know, how you helped them on the mental side, um, along with what their skills and abilities were in their coaching staff to bring home the gold medal? Yeah. So in my, you know, I retired in 06. And so I've been a consultant ever since then. And I'm founder of one softball, which is our video repository of, of videos for parents, players, and coaches. And then I'm also a professor at UCLA in the transformational coaching and leadership master's program. And I really took a lot of those principles that uh, we espouse in graduate school and really apply them in my work as a consultant around my main two areas that I focus are really around team cohesion and then individual mastery. So the idea of being mentally ready on game day and how you manage your emotions. But most of my work with USA Volleyball was around building scaffolding, building framework around team cohesion, because like most national governing bodies, like national teams, they kind of operate as an all-star team in a way, kind of like a train station. Everybody comes to one place, they go somewhere, come back, and then they disappear. So there really isn't time and space for this idea of how do we come together and think as one, knowing we're competing against each other for two years, four years, depending on the NGB, to get paired down to 12 people that make the Olympic team. To give to set the scene with USA Volleyball, they had had 12 attempts in the Olympics. They'd been very close many, many times, silvers, bronze, in their 12 attempts, but they couldn't get over the hump, yet they knew they had the talent. And so fellow Bruin, Karch Karai, is the head coach, and he, through the players, they had heard me on a Zoom because we had just entered into the pandemic. So my work with the volleyball team, we were on Zoom for a year before I actually met them. So it was fascinating dynamic. And what my job was, what I do as a consultant is I come in and I first audit. I first lay down all the questions about what's holding you back. And then let me see if I can help you help yourself. And so in my 40 years of dealing with athletes, I have never been around a more gifted, more committed, more unselfish group of women as that USA volleyball team that made that run in Tokyo and ultimately won the gold medal. And so what we did was we defined our values. We asked each one of them what it looked like, what it didn't look like. 
in practice and in games and in travel and got hyper detailed around what it is and what it isn't. Because when we define the value, that definition actually becomes the standard. So for me, a standard isn't really coming down from the coach. The standard is actually those micro behaviors on a day-to-day basis. I call it a social handshake with the players to each other. Hey, dude, we don't do that here. This, we're USA Volleyball, we don't do this. And players build a player-led culture. And one of the things that was really important to them was, picture this scenario. 23 people train together, compete together, and then they're going to pick the 12, but the 23 have to stick together because there's a training regiment. And one of the things they wanted to do is they said, 23 people are going to go into Tokyo. And I had told them from day one, we're going to go get that jewelry. Because coach told me we had, the, we had the talent. We had the depth. We're going to go in there and get that jewelry. And we're going to do it with 23 strong, even though there are only 12 bodies in Tokyo. So we had this mantra from day one, 23. 23 strong. It's not six against six. It's 23 against six. And they really hung on to that. And that allowed them to put the team first. Then we built out working groups in the areas that were holding them back as a national team. And that work bred that confidence that, oh my gosh, no one's doing the work that we're doing in the pandemic. Because remember, we're doing this all on Zoom. So by the time we got into Tokyo, they were bulletproof. I mean, there was, no, we, we just said every day, this is going to be a great story. And we really, really did a lot of work around what, what I call the game changers. Those are the, the backup players. Those, in our world, we call it the dugout. In their world, if it's college volleyball, they call it the bench. It's international volleyball. It's called the box. And so the box was really built up as an identity because we knew we were going to need them. During the tournament, we had our starting setter go down and our number one hitter went down in the middle of the tournament. We didn't skip a beat, went through the whole thing and won that gold medal. And they'll forever have that memory and that process that they carried out. They're most proud of the fact that 23 won that gold medal. And a fun story, Leah, and I know you may have some questions, but a fun story when it was all done and they were getting ready to design the banner and USA Volleyball had everybody's name on it. And they thought, well, let's put all 23 names on it. And they're like, no. We don't need any names on it because we all know we don't want any names. We want just USA Volleyball. So this idea that we comes before me, even at the very end when it was time to have your bragging rights, I just love that, how they demonstrated that in every way. Wow. It gives me chills and tears <laughs> almost. And, and like you say, like, it's one thing to talk about it, but it's another to buy in and do it right? As coaches, you try to lead you as a consultant, you're trying to work with them and you're telling them, this is what will lead to that goal that you have set, but you have to buy in. You have to do the hard work. You have to commit and you have to keep team first. That's just so wonderful. Um, I'd love to finish up with you love to surf. You surf every day. You were a former pro surfer, right? A lot of people don't yes. know that. I mean, everybody yes. knows you in the solo world, but I love that side of you. I still, I'm, I think I'm too old. I want you to help my boys learn. We've talked about doing that in the past. Yes. You know, they can maybe come and surf with you someday, but how important is it to then have this joy in life to be able to go and do the things that you love, that you can work so hard and you can be high achieving and strive to be your best. But I'm really big on that balance. To me, gold standard is to have that value in every aspect of life, not my family is suffering over here, but then I'm doing well in my career or 
but just to say, no, we can really have that gold in every aspect of life. How important is for you having that balance and doing what you love to do? Oh, it's just extremely important. I mean, I was raised in a family where balance was important. Our family always did an amazing job of balancing family with sports. And um, one of the things that I would always encourage parents and, and kids to do is make sure you have those reset moments every day. So for me, with surfing, I, what I love about surfing is open access. Doesn't matter how much money is in your pocket. Doesn't matter how high on the corporate food chain you are. We're all sitting out there freezing, waiting for that next wave. Uh, we give up control as a surfer. When you go out there, we don't have control of the time, the cadence, the size um, of those waves. We give up control. So there's a real balancing around your humanness. And I think more than anything, how exhilarating it is because it's such a workout on your body and it's humbling because no day is the same. So you can't cheat the game, so to speak. And so all of those things added up has always been a great escape. And I'll always identify as a surfer, as a woman that ended up uh, having a wonderful career because of the people that were around me and the people that advocated for me, that gave me the opportunities. And I've never forgotten that. So to those young players that may be listening and to those parents that are listening, hold space for your child's passion. My parents always held space for me to do the things I was passionate about. And even in this crazy time today about scholarships, no one knows your kid better than you do, mom and dad. Hold space for them to do the fun, silly things that they enjoy. That will allow them to be more present in those high stress moments of school and, and travel ball. <laughs> how, how can people find you, Sue, and, and just be able to just hear your wisdom? Well, it's pretty easy. You know, I'm, I'm a little bit on Twitter, a little bit on Instagram, um, not a whole lot. Um, but you know what, Lee, I know that I'm at a point in my life where giving back is inc incredibly important. So whenever I'm on, on Zooms, I, I just always give out my phone number. I, I, my phone number is 310-528-1083. People think I'm crazy. And I just say, text me anytime. Give me a problem. Give me your solution. And I can give you feedback. People say, I can't believe you give your phone number. And I said, you'd be surprised how many people don't text. And so, because it's intimidating, right? Did she really mean that? Or was she just doing that on the podcast? But um, I do that because that's my way of giving back to a sport that's giving me my entire career. So it's the least I can do. Coach Enquist, thank you so much for everything that you've shared today. And I'm just excited. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with somebody that you know it could encourage, inspire, can just lift them up from where they are to get them to that next level, because that is what the gold standard is all about. So we'll see you here next time at the gold standard podcast. Thank you, Leah. It's so great to be with you. You are the gold standard. Thank you for everything you're doing and all your great work. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Gold Standard Podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share it with a friend. You can post on social media and tag at Leah20USA or use hashtag Gold Standard Podcast. Make sure you also subscribe so you get notified each week as a new episode releases. You can subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We appreciate your reviews as they help encourage others to listen in. Until next time, live out the gold standard and keep turning your goals into reality.